Hi, it's George here. Just before we get into this week's podcast, I just want to give a quick message. We recorded this podcast a few days before Jack Charlton sadly passed away. So given the subject of this podcast and Jack's role as a field sports communicator, we felt that it was fitting to dedicate this episode to his memory. Hello and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. This is episode seven, so thank you once again for joining us. I don't think any of us thought when we made a pilot at the start of lockdown that we'd still be making episodes, so it's brilliant that we're still doing it and it's because you've been listening, so thank you very much to everybody. We have got another special guest for you today, but first let me say hello to Chris. Chris, how are you doing? Afternoon, George. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. It's a pretty miserable day down here in Hampshire, but I've got something to keep me warm, so... Ditto. My, my, oh, mine's already burning my neck, by the way, on that note. <laughs> okay, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But Chris, first of all, I think you better tell us about our special guest. I've got a really interesting one this week. Really looking forward to chatting to our guest this week. We have with us Guy Adams, who is a writer for the Daily Mail. A, a keen sportsman, though. So before you uh, jump out of your seat and wondering what we're doing, this chap is very much on our side. So a keen sportsman into all sorts of various different sports, just like we are, but obviously shooting and fishing, a bit of hunting as well. So welcome. Welcome, Guy. Thank you for joining us. Afternoon. Hi. Nice to, nice to be here. So Guy, that's probably a good place to start. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background in, in shooting? And Yeah, of course. Um, I, I live in well, sort of Monmouthshire in South Wales, and I grew up here, and I grew up fishing first of all but my dad always shot and uh, my grandfather shot and uh, my uncles all shot and then from about the age of 10 I was desperate to shoot and when I went off to school I started clay pigeon shooting which I did I was at rugby and I did to a reasonably high standard when I was at school and then I guess when I was about 13 years old my dad finally let me have a go at some um, I think the first thing I ever shot I think was walked up grouse on the oh. Isle of Lewis, where we used to go every summer. That's a hell of an introduction. Well, I think walked up shooting, and I've, I've got a 10-year-old son now, and I, I think that when, it, when he gets old enough to be able to handle a gun, a shot by which I mean a shotgun, kind of correctly, and I feel like it's time for him to, to have a go at shooting, I, I would say that walked up shooting is one of the best ways to teach anyone to uh, not just to shoot but you'll also learn a bit of field craft and, and just in terms of the decisions you have to make when you're walking up you know when do you shoot how do you carry your gun what should you be looking at when a dog's gone on point where should you be standing where are the other guns standing is that bird safe to shoot oh a snipe's just got up should we have a go at that or is that unsafe that level of decision making if you can start doing that from the age of 13 14 you're going to be able to do it your whole life Whereas if you grow up and the only thing you ever shoot is, is and I'm not going to denigrate pheasant shooting, I think it's great. I think pheasants are great, you know, great, great birds. And, um, but if that's the only sort of shooting you do, it's a driven formal shooting, you never really have to make those decisions. Really interesting one, Guy, because the, uh, I think when, when you first start shooting, you're 
naturally quite nervous to take your shot, aren't you? Because of uh, etiquette and things like that. And if it's on a driven day, worried that it could be your neighbor's bird. So you always, you're, you're, you're naturally yes. quite careful. But in walked up shooting, surely you're going to be even more nervous. I mean, I can imagine you sort of not uh, aged uh, at a young age, sort of going out for your first couple of days and never taking a shot just well, because you're so nervous. We, we, we shot, I, and I still go up to the Isle of Lewis, and you shoot there, there'll be sort of two or three of you, two or three guns, and you're shooting over a pointer. So you are, and one of the guns would be your dad (laughs) and the other will be someone you know very well and they will know it's your first day. And so, and you're 13, 14. So you're not, you're not nervous in the way that you get, you know, you have no sort of fear necessarily of the social consequences of shooting your neighbor's bird, but um, (laughs) it is impressed on you that there will be real consequences if you were to, for example, shoot your neighbor's dog. So, there's actually less pressure because there are fewer eyeballs on you and that was quite nice as well it's it's just less of a formal setting isn't it as well so you know the a driven days are big yeah big to do and and a, a, a walked up shoot is a little less formal a little less etiquette involved and there's actually probably a little less as you say of that social pressure and also i i feel um if you're a completely complete beginner to shooting and you go out on a driven day i mean how does that work uh, I, I guess you you must someone must take you who you know and must basically stand with you all day and sort of te- teach you the the ropes. I suppose. I suppose that's the only way to do it. You couldn't yeah. you, you couldn't just go on a driven day straight off the bat. From experience here, I think that yeah, it's a you're absolutely right. It, it has maybe question. I haven't really thought about it for twenty years. I suppose, uh, but I think you start beating and and whatnot so you're actually out on a day and you see what goes on a fair bit even though you are behind the line and obviously loads of clay lessons all the rest of it but I think yeah absolutely it's all about that person that stands with you on that first day that can make or break you because you you can either just find yourself not pulling the trigger because because they're sort of constantly talking in your ear or they're a pretty good coach and and you sort of ease you into it quite nicely yeah I mean I I sort of think maybe we all as, as shooting people actually and you know I've never I've not I have to say I've not done tried this and maybe I should. We 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 also have a sort of responsibility to try and make other people interested in our sport. Maybe we should all think about trying to take someone who's not been shooting before, trying to take them shooting for a day. Maybe it would uh, maybe it'd be our, our good deed for the for, for our sport. It's certainly something that I enjoy you know on our beaters day we've got quite a few youngsters and a few few ladies and so on who haven't done a lot of shooting in our beating line and a couple the last couple of years I've stood with a couple of people on on various different drives and it's been really rewarding thing to do and and um helping somebody get their first game bird is um is a really special moment actually yeah um well one question i have um you chaps know this better than i do if you are a and it's a probably a question i'll have to address in a few years time if you've got a teenage son or daughter and that you're keen to introduce them to shooting um is there such a thing these days as a sort of small day that that you can you know yeah. somewhere you can go where there's you know a small bag and you know uh, uh, you don't have to spend hundreds and or even thousands of pounds for your child to <laughs> definitely yeah there definitely are and there's sort of mini driven is is yeah. the term that people use and of course you know small is a movable feast it depends on your definition a bit but there's also um there's I, on guns on pegs. I've seen two really good examples of this uh, introductory days. So first of all, Basque do their young shots days, yeah. which are specifically aimed at this education, which work really well. But I've seen some private shoots offering uh, sort of demo days where 
it's back to back. So the first day is a bit of tuition, coaching, all sorts of different stuff. Uh, Even right the way through to how to dress a bird and and eating and uh, cooking and stuff like that. But on the second day, being a walk one, stand one day, so you do a bit of beating and do a bit of shooting. Uh, And they're pretty well priced because naturally you don't end up shooting too many uh, on your first day out. But um, they're really interesting. I haven't seen them for a while. It's a brilliant thing. I mean, you know, it really is. Yeah, I actually did one of the Basque Young Shots days many years ago when I was about 13. So yeah, they're they're brilliant, actually. I assume they're as good as they were then. Um, Yeah, they're definitely a good way to start. I've heard great things about the Basque days. And I I think you do, there's a bit of air gunning and a bit of a bit of sort of learning about field craft and a bit of clay shooting and and maybe even some fly casting. I think it's a, it's a sort of big, big movable feast as far as I can see. Yeah, I mean, we did all sorts. We did ferreting and uh, <laughs> they put some eye protective glasses on a melon and shot it to show us the effects and all sorts of weird stuff going on. Parts of a gun. Yeah, it was a re- they were really good. I still remember a lot of it today, even though it was 20 years ago. Uh-huh. I think now is a good moment to move on to the most popular segment when we ask, what's that you're drinking? Now, before we go fully into that, I've got to tell you, Chris, we've had a complaint Uh, (laughs) this could be anything go on (laughs) my wife bless her has to listen to me editing these podcasts at length so she's probably listened to them more often than anybody apart from me and she said to me when I was editing the most recent one Chris doesn't seem to be trying very hard with his drinks it's just a succession of supermarket lagers (laughs) so please tell me You've got something interesting. Oh, I'm so pleased. She's teed me right up. Thank you, Misha. So this week I've gone massively out there. Uh, there's little that I'm drinking. Well, you can't buy what I'm drinking from the supermarket. So I'll start with that. I have a scorpion. Um, any ideas what a scorpion is? Something with tequila in it or oh, similar? Not far, not far. So a scorpion is a banana milkshake and rum. Uh, <laughs> I I love it when um, I first had one when I literally just started drinking uh, and we were on a family holiday very lucky to be in the Caribbean and I love Antigua and I bought back some English Harbour rum so this is English Harbour rum and banana milkshake um, but you can basically lose quite a lot of rum in this drink without realising uh, as I'm finding out right now um, it's, it's it's a really nice drink and I'd encourage you to try it it actually goes quite well on a on a summer's day would, would you believe yeah I wouldn't have thought it's the best drink when the, on, a, on a rainy <laughs> rainy Thursday well it makes you think just makes you dream doesn't it <laughs> Guy what have you got um, I'm afraid I'm gonna uh, there'll be a bit of vulgar product placement uh, because although I'm a filthy tabloid newspaper journalist my family is a brewing family, and we have a brewery up in Manchester called Joseph Holt, and a few pubs. And I mean, these have been hard, quite hard times for the hospitality industry for the last few months. And pubs are sort of starting to open up. And no one quite knows where the people are going to carry on. We're going to go back to them in the, the numbers that they, they they once did. So I'm doing a bit of service for the British brewing industry. <laughs> And I'd like, I mean, if all, if, all our, if all your listeners would also, you know, do, do a bit of service to your local pub, go down there, buy a pint of proper beer or two, maybe a bit of dinner in the next few weeks, that would be great. I'm drinking a bottle of, it's called Two Hoots. 
It's a golden ale. It's by Joseph Holt of Manchester. It's absolutely delicious. It's my go-to summer evening drink, even when it's raining outside. Love it. I'll make sure that we put a link to the to the brewery's website in the description so that people can check it out. Oh, please do. And, and you can also you can buy the beer online. Even you don't even have to go to the pubs. It can you can get it delivered to your door. So um, yeah, put a put a link up, um, and it comes with my Perfect. my full endorsement. Well, we love we love a bit of product placement, especially if it's uh, for a decent local brewery. I think that's uh, as you say, much needed at the moment. And it's a step up from Digby's homebrew cider as well. <laughs> it's very true george what are you drinking uh i have come full circle last week i was drinking a whiskey cocktail to drown my sorrows about not being able to go up to scotland to go salmon fishing this week this is the week when the rest of my family are up there catching fish and happily shaking a few off which gives me great joy but i've ditched the cocktail bit and i've just got whiskey this time (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that's helping on a very miserable afternoon. Can I ask what, what, what whiskey you're drinking, George? I've got Glenmorangie. Oh, good choice. Yeah. Uh, good choice, yeah. yeah. Which actually is what I think I drank in the first podcast um, that we mm. did. I was uh, going to say, you do, like a, you do like a neat spirit at an odd time of the afternoon. <laughs> well, it's a good excuse, isn't it? This is true. So, Guy, we first spoke not too long ago, and I got in touch with you because you wrote what I think is the most fascinating article I've read in the shooting world for quite some time. Oh, thank you. And, (laughs) well, you argued that the best publicity for field sports is almost no publicity at all, uh, with two exceptions. Could you give us a bit of a summary of that article for everyone that hasn't read it, uh, just so that uh, you know they can uh, understand what you're getting at here? Yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean, just in terms of my background, I do I do sort of investigations for the for the Daily Mail newspaper. So I go away and investigate stuff, and then do big sort of exposés. You could call them sort of long reads in our in our pages, usually on a Saturday. So I know all about. Uh, bad news stories uh, and good news (laughs) stories uh, and all of those kinds of things. In that job, I'd done one or two environmental stories, actually. I did a big piece on salmon farming uh, and the damage it's doing to wild salmon earlier this year. I've done a thing on rewilding and uh, and some of the conflicts it's been causing. And Patrick Galbraith, who who edits the Shooting Times, got in touch and, and asked if we could you know, meet for lunch or dinner or something. And we went out for dinner and he said, look, Guy, here's a question I wanted to ask you. I'm constantly asked as a sort of sporting journalist, uh, Patrick talking, uh, as somebody who is the shoot, editor of Shooting Times, our readers are always asking me, why can't or what have we got to do as a sport to win the mainstream media? In other, in other words, how can we get really positive coverage for shooting in... The, consu- the popular press, the Daily Mail, the Times, the Telegraph, the, you know, all those sort of papers, because that's what we need for the future of our sport. And I said, a very interesting question, Patrick. And, you know, I have no immediate answer to that, but let, let me go away and think about it. So I did. I went away and I, I, I spoke to one or two people. And really, the, the, I, I, I rang Patrick up and said, look, I, I'm very happy to write an article on this, but I, I sort of think in many ways, you're asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't be, how does shooting win the mainstream media? How do you get sort of positive articles about shooting in the papers all the time? 
Because at the end of the day, I'm not sure that is going to be very productive. And actually, even positive articles about shooting will often provoke a negative reaction. A lot of people, a lot of readers of uh, uh, people, who, people who may not know anything about shooting could read the most positive article in the world about, I don't know, pheasant shooting or deer stalking. But all they'll see when they look at that page is a dead stag or lots of dead birds. And, and they don't really like that. And it will make them, uh, it will actually, even if they read the article, even if they read about, you know, all the conservation work that shoots do and all the, sort of the, the ins and outs of deer management and land management, all the rest of it, they still are not going to like the idea that people are shooting animals for fun. So actually, we have to approach, I think, this whole question of public relations for field sports in a slightly different way. And by that, I mean, we have to think about what should shooting be trying to achieve? And basically, what shooting should be trying to achieve is is to be more or less left alone. Um, For people who like shooting to be allowed to carry on enjoying their sport, and for governments and activists to not be able to disrupt it. And so when you look at the numbers, there are, I think, about 600,000 people in the in Britain who, who shoot on a reasonably regular basis. Mm. Um, I think that's, a, I mean, no one's quite sure, but there's about 580,000 yeah. shotgun licenses. You look at the membership of Basque and organisations like that. Let's say that 600,000 people shoot. Then you think, well, how many people really hate shooting? And Again, you have to sort of look at the numbers, but the League Against Cruel Sports has about 10,000 members. The RSPCA has about 20 or 30,000 members. We can probably say confidently that 40 or 50,000 people in the UK really, really hate shooting uh, and 600,000 people really like it. And in the middle, you've got 70 or 69 million people who basically don't care. They're just not that bothered. And Mm. whenever they see articles in the press about shooting, and when they're news articles, they're invariably bad news stories because a a day's shooting where no one gets hurt and shot, no birds of prey are killed, and uh, all the birds are taken home and eaten is not going to be a news story. (laughs) Most of the time, they really don't care that much about shooting. And all the coverage of the sport will make them do is care about it and generally they are going to end up thinking whatever article they you you come out with whatever coverage you come out with they're just gonna they're gonna think oh look there's people shooting animals for fun I don't like that so so I was gonna say so what are the times then when you do think it's appropriate or when you when it when it would be a good idea for shooting to be covered in the press well can we start with the, the times it's really really bad for shooting to be covered in the press yeah, and then, no, that's, I mean yeah, that's sure. probably the best, the better way of the better way of approaching this question. So the one issue that time and time again will turn people against all shooting sports, so-called big game hunting, right? Yeah, a- yeah. Any picture of, uh, and they're generally overweight and a bit sunburnt <laughs> bloke standing next to a dead elephant. There is no way in the world that. The, the average reader of a popular newspaper or the average viewer of a, any sort of television show will look at that photo and not feel 
anything apart from revulsion and anger. Yeah, they're not going to look at that and say, ah, oh, conservation no. in action. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, you know and I know that there are many, many brilliant uh, examples of good practice in in big game hunting. There are many valid reasons why it is an extremely important conservation tool uh, and why it uh, can help conserve uh, habitats and, of course, endangered species. There are perfectly sensible comment articles you can write explaining all of those issues. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how well written they are, the average Joe is still going to look at that picture of a dead giraffe and think, I don't like that. I don't care about those arguments. I just don't like it. So I think any time someone in shooting is invited to, if you like, write a positive article about big game hunting, they'd be better off just saying, no, thanks. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm busy. Thank you. Because uh, just giving, it, giving the issue airtime is counterproductive. So you talked about the dead cat strategy, yeah, um, and how the antis might use it, that against us, yeah. it, which is essentially provoking outrage in what you're describing here. Could you? Could you? Sh- so in politics, and I, I do, I write about politics a little bit from time to time. There is a very sort of fashionable concept used in political campaigning, uh, and has been for the last sort of four or five years, called a dead cat strategy. And the theory behind it is basically. Uh, it's something like this. It's sort of, let's suppose if you're at a dinner party and you're debating a topic where the facts are almost entirely against you, uh, you're trying to argue something that is illogical um, and the longer the conversation continues, the more certain you are to sort of lose the argument. You should, you should actually shouldn't talk at all. You should stop talking and plonk if you were to let's suppose you were to take a cat that was dead and just plonk it on the dining room table in the middle of the dinner party you would then have a situation where all anyone is saying is good lord there's a dead cat on the on the table and what that means is that people will have stopped thinking about the subject that was giving you so much grief and will instead of just be obsessed by this dead cat and and those people they could be alarmed they could be disgusted they could be sort of traumatized there's a dead cat on the table, but you will have stopped a debate that you were going to lose. And in politics, these dead dead cat strategies can be very, very effective. So the most famous one recently was the uh, during the Brexit referendum uh, and Boris Johnson's sort of big red bus with, you know, claiming that the Britain sends a third of a billion pounds a week to the EU, which we should actually be spending on the NHS. It it was It was wrong. The actual amount was about and give or take 180 million. But by using that sort of huge figure, they they sparked so much outrage amongst their opponents that all anyone was talking uh, about for basically the rest of the Brexit referendum was which gargantuan sum we were sending to the (laughs) EU every week. And that, of course, worked out very well because the debate, the terms of the debate for the whole of that 2016 referendum were all about the fact that Britain is sending lots of money to the EU. And and, and so that's a sort of classic example of a dead cat strategy. It sort of seems illogical. It seems sort of bizarre. Why would you deliberately put an inflated number on the side of a bus and you, when you know it's going to be called out and people are going to think you're liars or whatever? Actually, 
it doesn't matter. It, it works. Now, in, in field sports, I would, I would argue that photographs of people big game hunting are the ultimate dead cat strategy when they're used by antis because they know that the moment they stick a picture of someone with a you know a, 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 with who's just shot a gazelle or something the moment a, a normal person sees that photo it doesn't matter what the arguments are for or against big game hunting they're just going to think there's a dead there's a there's a dead zebra. I don't like that. I don't like the people that do that. And therefore, I don't like people who shoot. And they use it very successfully. The other sort of big dead cat strategy, I would argue that antis have used in recent years is birds of prey. You know, anytime a bird of prey dies, and it's anywhere near a grouse moor, you get all these pictures of the dead peregrine falcon or whatnot on social media. And people see it and think, there's a dead bird. I don't like that. Yeah, their, their strategy there is quite clear, isn't it? That They've won the moment that that gets any reach on social media, whether it was true or not. And you can see that they're pushing that to the absolute limit and using it. They, they know that some birds of prey are killed illegally. So if they find any bird of prey, they just, just use that against us instantly yeah. uh, and just carry on that line, knowing that full well they're not really going to get taken to court or anything over it because all they've done is post a picture and suggested that it could yeah. have happened or it was found And here we don't know the context. We don't know when the bird died. We don't know why it died. Did it die of old age? Or, you know, or, or when they have one of those sort of tagged birds that suddenly go missing. Well, yeah, all birds die eventually. I mean, it's a fact of life. But they, they, they use it very cleverly and and obviously we live in an age of the so-called cancel culture where a few thousand very noisy people on social media can create such a noise within that particular bubble that organizations are convinced that the general public is obsessed by this issue and wants something to be done Uh, and antis have again been very successful at that so if you're if you're the league against cruel sports and you can get your ten thousand supporters to, I don't know, write to or, or uh, troll the um, University of Reading on Twitter and demand that they stop stop game shooting on their land, the University of Reading social media manager will suddenly go, "Crikey, we've got thousands and thousands of of messages from people who are outraged that we allow game shooting on our land. That the public must really hate us." And actually, they don't. But but within this sort of echo chamber of social media, five or ten thousand people have successfully convinced uh, an organisation that the public is 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 against them when they're they're really not. So, you know, they, they, it, those sort of strategies are used far better, uh, or used far more um, frequently by the opponents of shooting than than by supporters of shooting. Um, and do, do we have uh, opportunities to use this dead cat strategy ourselves? Um, yes and no. I mean, I would argue that the pro- the problem is. So I, I'm old enough to remember the 1990s when 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 Tony Blair's government came into power in '97, and everyone knew that. I think they had a, it was a manifesto commitment, but there was there was always going to be something done, some legislation involved uh, over hunting. It would have been a, I think it was a manifesto pledge to have a free vote on it. And 
So hunting was sort of under attack, as it were, and had been for, 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 for some time. And the tactics used by supporters of hunting during that era, I remember very well, was that they said, well, we know that hunting is actually the, the very best thing for a fox. You know, that it, it, we maintain a, 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 a reasonably streamlined and healthy fox population, uh, enough for us to hunt, but not so much that they, they sort of cause damage to farmers' uh, livelihoods and whatnot. So they said, well, it's very simple. To win this argument, all we've got to do is to go on the telly and go on the radio and say hunting is the you're killing foxes and by hunting them is the um is actually good for the fox and we'll make that argument it's it's true so we'll win the argument and nothing will happen and of course what happened was the general public just saw people going on the telly talking about killing foxes so all they saw was oh people are people are killing people are talking about killing foxes i don't like the idea of foxes being killed therefore i don't like hunting so you get sort of lost in this sort of argument i'm I would say that from shooting's point of view, anything about killing is a no-no in terms of PR. It's not gonna, it's not gonna be helpful. Where we can probably win the argument a bit more is on the, the food front. Game is super organic. It's you know ethically reared. Uh, it's I mean, you can have the argument about whether it's ethically killed. I would say it's much more ethically killed than a than a than even the the most expensive free range hen. And people, when they eat it, tend to find it quite delicious. I think we can do. I think there is mileage in that. I think there's also mileage in you look at the TV audience for something like Crufts. People are genuinely fascinated by gun dogs and how they work. And if people can become interested in in the in field craft because of because they're fascinated by retrievers or pointers or whatever that could make interest them in shooting and make them look at shooting a bit differently but i think the you know the biggest point actually is shooting must not give ammunition to its opponents it just it just mustn't so any all persecution of birds of prey just has to stop any and i don't know if this is happening or not and and i, I suppose it must have been happening in in very isolated circumstances, but any shoots that are, that are not ensure, ensuring that all of their shot game enters in some way enters the food chain again, that is a that is a big no no and a huge problem from shooting if it gets out. So so really the you know the message is that shooting has to make sure it doesn't screw up. Yeah, and and so guy, yeah, when one of these cats lands on the dinner table. What? How should the the shooting world respond? The people who oppose shooting know that their strategy is working, and as you say, there's sadly no shortage of ammunition for them at the moment. So, so well, I mean, there is quite a shortage. I would argue. I mean, they're looking really, really hard. And how much coverage is is uh, and is is actually how much hostile coverage of field sports is making its way into the into the press i mean not a lot a couple of times a season maybe yeah i'd say there's two ways you two ways shooting needs to respond uh from a pr point of view when stories are when anti-shooting stories end up in the press and they are flat out wrong uh then the shooting community needs to get nasty and to uh, and to make sure there are consequences for newspapers that cover 
uh, that publish false stories. The Countryside Alliance currently has an IPSO complaint in the works. Um, IPSO is the newspaper regulator for those who are not sort of versed in this kind of thing. An IPSO complaint in the works against the, I think it was the Sunday Telegraph. There was a rather odd story about alleging that Brits were paying loads of money to go to I think it was Iceland. Yeah. You remember to shoot to shoot puffins. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean it was untrue. It was just it was just flat out untrue. It was unsupported by any evidence. The Telegraph was told it was untrue. They'd still published it. They've not corrected it. And so sh- shooting needs to w- w- when stuff like that happens, you got to complain and you got to jump through, through all the hoops and win victories, you know, that way. Equally, when, I mean, as hunting has shown, when you're persecuted through the court system, hunting has won an awful lot of cases, and you've got to trumpet those victories quite quite noisily, because they they have sort of shown that the uh, prohibition hasn't really, hasn't really worked. I think, and I think, all, so, so you've got to be kind of, when you've got the opportunity, you've got to be, you've got to be pretty robust in defending yourself. In terms of those, I suppose, dinner party conversations about killing animals, I think it really, I mean, it, it comes down to, you know, the old debate about the 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 ethics of consuming any uh, any sort of any sort of um, meat, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I think that's uh, the biggest. That, that's such a huge area of, of focus for, for the shooting community at the moment. I I sit on the advisory committee committee for the British Game Alliance, uh, which is something that's really important to us because we've got to make more, we've got to get more people eating game because anyone that does eat game is potentially a, on our side you know they Correct. they they are people that we could turn to understand where this free range meat comes from uh, and so they would at least be impartial to towards shooting which is a win i mean impartial is is the goal right yes i mean on on a micro level of course, we should all int- try and introduce people to shooting. We should take them shooting. I mean, the, the other the other sort of area where quiet lobbying kind of works is in the in terms of sort of educating lawmakers about the rights and wrongs of shooting. You can kind of do that in a dispassionate way. So lawmakers tend to look at the nuances of an issue in a way that you know Joe Public doesn't really. So. If, uh, if, part, if if the government, for example, wanted to ban driven grouse shooting, you can obviously look at the science of, of whether that would be a good or bad thing with lawmakers whose job it is to actually look at the granular detail of issues like that. So you know, lobbying is important yeah. uh, and it's a different thing from PR. There's there's two things, two really important points you've made there. There's obviously quite regularly uh, polls or uh, petitions for the banning of driven grouse shooting, and one of them reached over a hundred thousand. Actually, didn't they get one just before uh, lockdown that should have been debated in Parliament that got delayed? So it's actually still due yeah. to be debated. So so th- so they get it. They they can whip up a bit of a frenzy on social media and do the minimal amount of endorsement from someone which is a click on on facebook i mean that's yeah. that's not that's not someone going to stand outside parliament and shout uh, that's just a click on facebook but they get that and that contributes towards the hundred thousand so we then have to rely upon people like the gwct and their work and the science so that others like basque and countryside alliance can go and lobby the the, the mps so that 
when it comes down to a simple vote in Parliament, it falls on our, on our side. And I think that's what you're getting at there. Yeah, and select committees and whatnot who would look at, you know, what should we should we be doing? Should we be should we be looking at a bill to curtail, for example, driven grouse shooting? We'll look in really in, in proper detail at the rights and wrongs of it. Doesn't stop a minister if a minister wanted from just saying we're going to do it anyway, but it makes it a lot harder. Um, yeah. But lo- lobbying is very important. I mean, and as everyone who shoots, I think I'm a big believer in the the code of good shooting practice. Yeah. And I think, you know, we should all really be made pretty sure that the shoots we choose to spend money going on adhere to that code. Yeah. And the other interesting topic on this front, you know, the, do you remember the, obviously, the talk of the ban on lead shot, which is a huge story in shooting circles, but got very, very limited coverage in, in the wider media because it's not really important to Joe Public. But the, the reason why so many shooting organizations are anxious to ban lead shot i'm not i don't want to get into a debate about the rights and wrongs of it i appreciate people have strong views about it but the reason is they're looking a few years down the line and they are thinking what could be the next big issue that gives us problems and they see lead shot as potentially that they're looking, you know, three years ahead. If some some study comes out showing that, you know, waders or what whatnot are dying from ingesting lead, shooting's going to look pretty dodgy. And so they're trying to avoid that. It's self regulation, isn't it? Uh, we we, yeah. we self regulation has to work at the moment. Otherwise, the only alternative is that you know legislation gets put upon us. And so we have to make decisions which take five years forward, look back, would they be vaguely sensible? And if if the answer is yes, we have to do those now. So that's why people like the British Game Alliance are putting in checks and, and audits on shoots to make sure that they're following best practice, which is based on the Code of Good Shooting Practice and a whole load of other things about the handling of game and all sorts of other stuff. Um, but it's absolutely spot on. Like if we don't uh, introduce self-legislation, we're, we're sitting ducks. Yeah, and I think you've got to look ahead. In, in 20 years' time, does anyone honestly think it'll be fine, you know, people will still be shooting with lead? No, exactly. I, I, I just don't think it's likely. And, and therefore, let's just, let's just find a way, let's find a way to live with the consequences of not shooting with lead. And let's do that now. Like the bullet, so to speak. And, and you know, but let's do the same. With, what, what else is going to, tw- in 20 or 30 years' time, what is happening in shooting now that is not going to be acceptable then? Mm. Let's get ahead of that. So I've just got a question then. Bring it back to the media point. How do you feel about people posting pictures on their own social media accounts, which are public, so Instagram yeah. and Facebook, with them with bags of pigeons and pheasants and so on? It's a, it's a tricky one because I honestly think it's, it, it depends. It depends. Everything's, it always depends on context. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, actually. As long as you're prepared for the consequences of doing it. I, I, I've got a Twitter account. I, I don't think I'd post a picture of shot game on Twitter. And I've got a Facebook account. I, I, might, I might post a picture of the odd bird on there. I mean, I'd, I'd just be careful, you know. Think about it. Think about how, it, how what you've posted could be interpreted. And if you're happy to do it, crack on but i i you know be careful and what 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 were the how could that picture out of context come back to you know come back to bite you i think i i think it gets a bit tricky when you stalking photos i think become prob can be problematic 
guy on the subject of social media yeah. i run the guns on pegs social media accounts yeah and whenever for example chris packham rears his head again people talk about his sort of celebrity status and one of the arguments that i see time and again is that we need a mainstream tv show that endorses shooting now i briefly worked in tv and know that there's a hell of a lot to take into account it's very expensive do you think there'd be any mileage in that kind of thing do you think it'd get made do you think anybody would be interested in in broadcasting it and and would it have the effect that people think it would have i think it probably wouldn't get made for the simple reason that there wouldn't be enough of an audience uh, for 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 a network or for a you know tv show you need you know you need millions of people to watch it for it to be a hit i think sort of documentaries about um, I, I've just been re-watching, actually, the, um, who watched the Jack Charlton on field sports yeah, so good, yeah, from the 70s. I think that was really interesting and really sort of educational and with the right person fronting it, I think would be a really, if, if it's done well, could be really, could be really helpful. I mean, I, I, I question whether any broadcaster would commission it in this day and age and whether they would allow a show like that to be broadcast without, you know, that th- there would be a huge sort of backlash. And, 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 and in, in, other, in any case, broadcasting is sort of changing, isn't it? I mean, the, the era of having to, if you're a shooting enthusiast, the only place you can watch good, co- get good content about shooting being on your television, that era is over. I mean, there's some great shooting content on YouTube, I watch field sports TV a bit, and I think they've got to make make some cracking shows. I mean that you know that for enthusiasts, there's great programs out there. I don't think I think it'd be very hard to make a TV show about shooting that would change people's minds about it. They tried. I mean, they tried a few years ago with Clarissa Dixon Wright and Johnny Scott, didn't they? they did yeah, they did. Yeah, they Clarissa did, yeah. and the Countryman. So it does happen. I mean, it happens from time to time, and when it when it's done right, it works. But, you know, who's that? I don't think it... I mean, a celebrity isn't essential. And, I mean, you know, Robson Green makes very uh, very successful shows about fishing, of course. You know, he's a sporting man. And I don't see that he gets a lot of... Too much of a back... Too much sort of grief about that. No, all that stuff helps us, really, doesn't it? Because it's about yeah. the, harvest, the harvesting of something wild in a, in a sort of hunting fashion. And yeah. whether that's fishing, shooting, or whatever, it's all it's all backing up what we stand for. Um, so my sort of final question to you then is: if you're the head of a communications communication strategy at uh, at a shooting organisation, what is your strategy? I think it's it's soft it's soft PR. Um, so it's lobbying behind the scenes. It's I suppose you call it crisis PR. If bad stories come out, it's trying to manage them. Quite a lot of the anti-shooting stories that have ended up in the press recently have had uh, have been I think have been managed because there have been some sort of factual inaccuracies in the way they were initially presented so I think it's that it's you know it's a mixture of of soft PR and kind of crisis management from time to time and, and trying to snuff out problems before they arise and your sort of nightmare of course is that one news story that would suddenly turn driven game shooting into the number one trending topic on Twitter and and would would prompt sort of endless change.org petitions 
you know, that one news story that let's say Dominic Cummings hadn't gone to Barnard Castle to correct his eyesight, but had gone on a day's shooting. I mean, can you imagine, you know, that sort of, that level of, if you get that level of outrage um, about a single bad news story, that that's real, that, that could be real trouble. But hopefully it won't come to that. Um, the thing we can all do to stop that happening is obviously to make sure that the shoots we go on are run well. And I mean, I don't know whether you two agree, but, I get a, you get a pretty good gut feeling on a shoot as to whether the way the shoots run and the way the land is being managed for shooting is kind of good for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think you really need to know what you're talking about. That's the thing. I don't think, unfortunately, and I might be doing a disservice here, I think there's a lot of people who shoot who who maybe don't spend enough time thinking about what goes on behind the scenes. There's some really easy telltale signs, though. Uh, and if you immerse your head in the code of good shooting practice and the BGA standards and things like that, you should be able to spot them quite quickly after that. Yeah, but I of course won't name names or anything like that. But I've been on the odd shoot over the years where when you're driving from drive to drive, you sort of look out the window and all you can see are pheasants everywhere. And you just think, should there really be this many birds on this bit of land? Is this is this is this natural? Is this is there sort of is there is this balanced? And mm. you know, I, I think that's a bit of a red flag sometimes. And but then you know, by the same token, there's nothing wrong with that. People have a slight obsession, um, I think, wrongly with bag sizes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with big bags. Oh, uh, is it, it, it's not as straightforward as that, you know, and and actually. Big bags can have people who are shooting sort of three or four hundred birds in a day. As long as the the shoots managed right, it's absolutely fine. In fact, it can be better than lots of sort of smaller days in terms of the impact on other species. Yeah, I mean yeah. that that is that is a huge debate in its own right. Yeah. Uh, just 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 quickly on that point, I, I do agree with you. Uh, and uh, for me, the debate is nothing about bag size; it's about the net uh, positive impact if a shoot can demonstrate one yeah uh, and to be honest if you if you if you have big days but you're doing good for the environment then that's absolutely fine so i think that really should be our own. everyone who runs a shoot should be a pr man for shooting and that means you know looking after your neighbors and talking to your neighbors a bit and taking them a brace of dressed birds from time to time and you know if you think of yourself as an ambassador for your sport, then I think, you know, and if shooting had 600,000 ambassadors for its sport, it would it would win a lot of friends quite easily. And I, I think that some people, there is a temptation sometimes, isn't there, to be a little embarrassed about being, or at least sort of just not to talk about, not to want to talk about shooting in in certain sort of in, in certain social situations and i think that's a mistake um i think you have to mm. you have to be an amp- you can't you can't try and be sort of furtive about the fact that uh furtive about your your sort of sport um because if you think you're being fur- if you're being furtive you're actually sort of being dishonest to yourself in a way mm. yeah i think that's absolutely right and i think chaps it's probably about time that we wrapped up so i think that that kind of brings us quite nicely full circle my takeaway from this conversation and guys it's been fascinating to hear your arguments it actually brings me all the way back to what we talked about right at the beginning 
which is perhaps the most useful thing that we can do to protect shooting is actually to take someone shooting. I don't know what you guys think about that, what your kind of final thoughts on this whole thing might be. I agree, and I will do it this season. And I think if we can't take someone shooting, give someone some birds. Yeah. You know, just oven ready, say, as a gift. Next time you're invited to someone's house for dinner, here's a couple of, you know, bring them a couple of oven ready birds and, you know, maybe you can, maybe that's a sort of, that's a sort of lazy man's, (laughs) lazy lazy person's alternative to taking someone shooting. But no, that's dead right. I agree. I think that the only thing I'd add to that is is the standards point. If if shoots could just think about the, the practices that they use and guns can think about the shoots that they go to and the questions that they ask those shoots, that would be a really great place to start because that would be a far cry from where we were 10 years ago. Hmm. Uh, and and I think just improvement in standards is going to be have, have to be the way we go. So that would be my takeaway. Amen. Well... Thank you ever so much once again, Guy. Everybody listening, it's been a slightly different tone to previous podcasts, but I think it's been a really interesting conversation and I hope that everybody listening has enjoyed it and and got something to think about. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and sign up to our email newsletter. Until we do see you again, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. (laughs)